Uh, Well, let's come to God in prayer as we think about Deuteronomy 15. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Uh, Father, please use me in my weakness to speak it truthfully and faithfully, and I pray that the Spirit would help us all hear what you're saying to us tonight and apply it to our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, can you think of a time when you were in real need and someone took pity on you and gave you a helping hand? Uh, Most of us know that compassionate generosity is a beautiful thing. When we see it, we love it. Uh, I'll never forget one of the first times I experienced compassionate generosity. Uh, It happened when I was still a primary school kid growing up in Victoria, rural Victoria. Uh, My parents had sent me down to the only takeaway shop in Bort, my town, which is that one if you're interested. Found it online, couldn't believe Bort had made it to the internet. Um, Now I was, uh, they sent me down to this shop with a couple of dollars to buy um, some hot chips for Friday night dinner. And I, of course, was happy to run that errand. Um, But on the walk back home, I managed to trip over um, an uneven footpath and I spilt my hot chips everywhere, and I was devastated. Um, I have always loved hot chips. Uh, And so as I was pulling myself up off the ground, dusting myself off, um, our local Baptist minister and his wife were driving by. Uh, When they saw me standing there amidst a pile of spoilt chips at my feet and looking pretty traumatised, they actually pulled over, and they just... Uh, checked that I was okay. They then drove me to the, back to the shop and proceeded to buy me twice the amount of hot chips, a couple of pieces of fish, and a few other goodies to boot. And then they drove me back to my family again. Now, this act seems little now, um, but it actually had a lasting impression on me, as you can see. Uh, I've never forgotten that simple display of compassionate generosity. I still remember that bloke as the fish and chips pastor. (laughs) In my moment of need, he and his wife genuinely cared and willingly gave. Or to tap into the language of our text tonight, uh, they had soft hearts and open hands. Soft hearts and open hands. Well, in Deuteronomy 15, we're thinking about how God wants us to respond to those who are poor and needy among us. And we're not just thinking about the adorable kid on the side of the road who really wanted chips for dinner that night, but we're thinking of anyone who comes, uh, who we see in real strife and needs help. God's word to Israel here remains applicable for us today. God wants us to be people who are marked by soft hearts and open hands. So as we go through this text, we'll consider what it was to look like for Israel to apply that principle in the lands they were entering into. And as we do that, we'll occasionally stop and think about how all of this applies to us as followers of Jesus today. Now, I've broken the passage into three parts, as you can see on the outline, Israel's generosity to the poor, Israel's generosity to the debt slave, and Israel's worship of the generous God. We're going to spend most of our time on the first two 
points. So first, Israel's generosity to the poor. God calls Israel to show compassionate generosity to those who are poor in the covenant community of God's people. Verses 1 to 3 tells us that every seven years, individual debts in Israel are to be cancelled. Sounds great. The result of this would be that poor Israelites trapped in debt would actually be given a merciful second chance at life. So look at verses 1 to 3. Let's read them in our Bibles. At the end of uh, every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it's to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for cancelling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Now, just to kind of clear things up, um, verse 3 is not suggesting that God doesn't care about foreigners. Uh, we've already seen that he does. Deuteronomy 10.19 says uh, to Israel, and you are to love the foreigners uh, who are among you, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. But the focus of this chapter in Deuteronomy 15 is not so much on those outside of God's covenant people, but those on the inside, and specifically the poor and needy within the Israelite community. Moses is saying to Israel here, God cares about your poor brothers and sisters, and so you must care too. Don't simply think about uh, those who owe you money or property as debtors, but brothers, sisters, fellow Israelites. See, notice the language that's getting used here at the start of the passage. Verse 2, alone they have made to a fellow Israelite. Verse 3, you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. Uh, When we come across someone... In our church, here at the 5 p.m. service, who's in desperate need, one of the first things we need to do is to view them as the way God views them, to view them in the way God wants us to view them. They are a fellow brother or sister who we are connected and committed to because of our shared faith in Jesus. Israel is being called here to have compassionate hearts that long to see their fellow brothers and sisters freed from the burden of crippling debt and poverty. Now, perhaps some of you have actually had a bit of a taste of that freedom, even at a small level. You know, maybe your parents uh, cancelled the rest of what you owed them uh, when you took a loan from them to pay for your first car. Maybe the local library cancelled the debt you had racked up on late fees over the years. See, even in these small moments... Uh, we get that good taste of freedom from debt. Uh, As I was um, sort of thinking about debt this week, I came across um, some pretty shocking stats coming out of India. Uh, India is a highly agrarian society. Uh, But since the 1990s, many Indian farmers have been finding themselves in increasing uh, debt. In fact, there has actually been a a national catastrophe of farmers taking their own lives because of their inability to repay loans taken from many lenders to buy expensive new seed and fertilisers. 
Uh, last year, in one kind of western state alone in India, uh, more than 60,000 farmers took their own life because of this sense of hopelessness, hopelessness coming from debt. See, crippling debt can devastate people's lives. It can be a cause of ongoing grief for families and communities. Well, much like India, ancient Israel was a largely agrarian society where people relied heavily on the produce from their land. See, imagine what it would have felt like for an ancient Israelite who, because of maybe crop failure or some kind of accident, found themselves completely indebted to another person. You know, maybe there's the hope uh, that the money that you've borrowed can be paid off if you get a next good harvest, but what if that good harvest doesn't come? What then? There's no Centrelink in ancient Israel. Debt and poverty was what you and your family faced. So this law was kind of like to function like a merciful second chance for people and their family to get out of that poverty and that debt. And just imagine how wonderful it would have been if if even a handful of those 60,000 Indian farmers had received the freedom that we're kind of reading about here in Deuteronomy 15. See, how good would it be to live in a society marked by that compassionate generosity? In fact, the only thing better is if there wasn't any poverty at all. And actually, did you notice that that's the ideal future Moses goes to describe uh, in verses 4 to 6 for Israel? It's like he pauses for a moment to get them to think about what that would be like. He's saying to Israel, if, if you will just simply trust God and follow his commands, you won't even have to deal with the issue of what to do with the poor, verse 4. Because under God's blessing, there wouldn't be any poor. If Israel just trusts and obey God, he will provide so richly for them that they'll never be reliant on any other nation for provision or protection. To the contrary, Moses is saying, you guys will lend to many nations. Verse 6, you guys will rule over many nations. Uh, It's kind of like a utopic picture. No poverty, no need, just blessing. Uh, But we know from Israel's history that they never experienced that ideal reality set forth in verses 4 to 6. In fact, no human society has ever experienced this reality. As much as, all, as we all want the end to poverty, uh, the sin and broken, brokenness present in our lives and in our world means that we just can't get it. But you see, this picture in verses 4 to 6 isn't just some kind of pipe dream by God. Uh, For those who are followers of Jesus and trust in Jesus' righteousness, not our own, we look forward to the real hope of a future utopia in the new heavens and the new earth. See, we know a day is coming when God will finally eradicate the presence of sin and the horror of poverty and we will live forever in God's blessing. Uh, But that's a future hope. And so Moses returns again to the reality of poverty that will actually be present 
in the land of Israel. And look at how he now guides Israel through a real-life example of how to apply that law in verses uh, 7 and following. So let's pick it up at verse 7. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. How do you treat a poor Israelite according to God? Soft hearts, open hands. And he says that in verse 8, doesn't he? Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. They need some bread, you loan them some bread. Their kids need new clothes, well, you loan them some clothes. Their only milking cow just died, well, you loan them one of your milking cows. They need a loan to get out of financial trouble, well, you loan them some of your silver. Now, God knows that people might be happy to spot their neighbour if they know that they'll get it paid back to them. But what about that situation that arises when a poor brother knocks on your door late at night towards the end of that seven-year period and he's desperate for a loan at that point? The droughts hit him particularly hard and you can't really see how he and his family are going to make ends meet. See, at that point in time, being compassionately generous is actually quite costly, isn't it? Because you might think, well, I've got the means to loan to this bloke, but in a couple of months I'll be required to cancel that debt, according to God. I'm actually not really sure I want to take that kind of hit, to be honest. See, look at how verse 9, though, speaks into that battle of the heart. Moses says, be careful not to harbour this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for cancelling debts is near. Hmm. So that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you'll be found guilty of sin. These words remind us, I think, that God actually cares about the state of our heart. You see, the harder your heart is to a brother or sister, the tighter your fist becomes. But the softer your heart is to a brother or sister, the more open your hand becomes. See, look at verse 10. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all the work, in all your work and in everything you put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. And God is saying, you don't actually have to worry, Israel. I'm going to look after you in all of this. I'll keep providing for your needs. You just worry about being compassionate and generous to your neighbours. When it comes to the poor, God wants soft hearts and open hands. And so it's probably worth uh, pausing at this point to ask ourselves, how are we going caring for those in need? Now, it's good to reflect on on how we are responding uh, to the poor in other countries. It's good to reflect on how we are responding to the poor on our streets in Melbourne. Uh, But I think this passage is actually getting us to also think a little bit closer to home. 
See, Moses is telling God's people how to care for their fellow Israelites in their local towns or community groups, according to verse 7. So how are we going caring for our fellow Christians in the community God has placed us in here at the 5 p.m. service? I actually think one of the questions we might need to ask ourselves is, is are our relationships with each other deep enough that we would actually know if someone was in need? Would we know if one of the students was skipping meals to pay their rent? Would we know if someone was struggling under the weight of medical expenses or long-term unemployment? See, some people just find it difficult to kind of bring up their needs if they don't know you that well. So perhaps it's worth um, actually going a bit deeper in our relationships, building some depth to them, and actually asking from time to time, uh, how are you going making ends meet? Are you okay? And when we do become aware of someone's need in in our community here, what do we actually do about that? Would we pass the Deuteronomy 15 test? Do we have soft hearts that lead to open hands? Would we compassionately give knowing that we might not get anything back? Would we loan someone our car knowing that there's a real risk it could be scratched or made all festy inside or damaged in some way? Would we let a financially strapped student stay in our spare room if it meant disrupting our kind of personal lives? See, I I suspect, if we're honest, most of us find uh, this kind of generosity challenging. It's hard not to be like verse 9 and harbour wicked thoughts in our hearts that would stop us from having soft hearts and open hands. Well, let's keep going because there is hope in what coming in Moses' next words to Israel. So point to Israel's generosity to the debt slave. Uh, In verses 12 to 18, we see again God's compassionate heart on display for those who are in real economic strife among his people. Uh, I think we know that sometimes in life things can go from bad to worse. Uh, Maybe you lose your job only to come back and realise you've got a car rego bill that's waiting for you on the kitchen table. Maybe you go to the dentist to get one sore tooth looked at and then you find that you've got to have four different fillings. See, life can quickly turn from bad to worse and things can become catastrophic. And that was the case for those in ancient Israel who, for whatever reason, couldn't get themselves out of debt and financial trouble... Uh, As I mentioned earlier, in such cases, uh, the person was left with two options. Uh, Either I starve to death, perhaps me and my family, or I sell myself as a slave to the person I owe money to in order to pay off the debt. So the first law that we looked at just before was dealing with the poor Israelite in debt, This second law is actually dealing with the completely impoverished Israelite who now becomes a debt slave. Uh, Now, debt slavery or debt servitude was common in the ancient world. 
Uh, and it was actually open to a lot of abuse. Um, as part of my exit thesis in my last year of Bible college, I had to kind of research a lot about um, different forms of slavery in the ancient world. And sort of long story short, in many of the nations surrounding Israel, uh, slaves could be just treated like just real rubbish. Uh, just treated like property. They were stripped of their dignity and the owner could kind of treat them in any way he chose. But notice what God's law is doing here. He's actually laying out another compassionate command that makes sure that these people who have been sort of thrust into this really horrible circumstance, that they don't actually get stuck in that position. God commands that they be released and given a new lease on life after six years of service. See, look at with me at verse 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and serve you six years, in the seventh year, you must let them go free. And they're not just getting sent out from their service with like a bus ticket and a $5 coupon to Macca's. Um, look at verse 13 and 14. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally, generously, from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. And you see, Israel can do all this and, and not see it as a hardship because of the confidence God again gives them. Down in verse 18 there, the Lord will bless you in everything you do. Don't worry. And notice also that God actually provides a, a compassionate exception to this law that he just gives. You see, if the six years of service are done, and the slave is thinking, well, I actually have it pretty good here. I'm not sure, really sure I want to leave this family. Well, God says in that case, you can stay. You can stay in the most painful way, but we'll, we'll get there. Look at verses 16 and 17. But if your servant says to you, I don't want to leave you, because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Now, that imagery kind of sounds pretty brutal. I'm not sure I'd love to go through that. Um, but it was actually a physical mark all through the earlobe uh, that could give the servant confidence by reminding them every time they felt that little hole that their future is secured with this family. It was actually a sign of security. Uh, there's a clothes donation bin near Uni Hill, if you walk over to the shops, uh, that you'll see. And on the side of this clothes donation bin says this, give your clothes a second life. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 15, it's kind of like God is saying to Israel, give your poor, give your debt slave a second life through compassionate generosity. Let them experience freedom. See, God cares about the poor and needy among his people but what is going to make Israel care about them? What will motivate them to keep these laws and actually show compassionate generosity? I will just look 
uh, in verses 14 and 15 at the compelling motivation God gives them. Moses says to Israel, Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. Uh, when I was doing some chaplaincy uh, work at Bundara Footy Club, um, there was a bloke I got chatting to there one day um, who had told me about uh, his kidney transplant. I think maybe I've mentioned this to some of you at some point. Um, and prior to the transplant, uh, this bloke was talking to me about just the miserable life that he had. He was like on constant uh, dialysis. He couldn't really do much in life. Um, but when he received the donor kidney, just everything changed for him. He didn't need the dialysis anymore. He was able to get back into exercise and, and help the boys at the club exercise as well. And you see, because he knew the great gift that he'd been given, he actually became committed to advocacy for organ donation. He would go and speak at different things so that other people who were in his circumstance might experience the freedom that he had been given. And I actually think it's the attitude of this bloke is kind of what God is wanting here from Israel. As God had given freedom to Israel when she was a poor slave, so Israel should willingly give freedom and relief to the poor when called upon God to do so. You see, if our hands are going to be open, our hearts need to be soft. And if our hearts are going to be soft, our heads need to remember. We need to remember how God has been generous to us. As Christians, we have an even bigger reason to show compassion and generosity to those who are in real need. Uh, Israel was freed from slavery in Egypt uh, through God's generosity in the Exodus. Christians have been freed from slavery to sin through God's generosity in Jesus. See, Jesus himself actually kind of lays out the problem for us. When he comes to earth, he says in John 8.34 that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We're unable to break free from a life that rejects God. Without God's intervention, we are enslaved to our own desires. And because we ignore God and we reject God, we actually come under his judgment. And actually, that kind of sums up the story of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament after this point. See, time and time again, Israel failed to live God's way and then come under God's judgment. Their history actually shows us that they repeatedly failed to be compassionate or, or generous to the poor and the needy among them. Uh, in Jeremiah 34, uh, there we are. Uh, the prophet takes them to task for blatantly disregarding this particular law and refusing to release their slaves. It says, your ancestors, however, did not listen to me or pay attention to me. 
Without God's intervention, we, like Israel, are in spiritual poverty. We are enslaved to sin and we face God's judgment. Actually, this is why the message of Jesus is so good. You see, through his death and resurrection, Jesus actually cancels our debt with God. He makes spiritually poor people spiritually rich. He makes people enslaved to sin and death spiritually free to enjoy life with God. Through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven of our sin, we are made acceptable in God's eyes, and we are given the gift of eternal life with God. See, listen to how the Apostle Paul uh, kind of speaks about this spiritual rags-to-riches story in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus himself shows that costly and compassionate generosity to us at the cross. And so if you're visiting uh, with us tonight and you're not yet a Christian, uh, well, please know that through faith in Jesus, you too can enjoy the spiritual riches that his death and resurrection bring. Uh, Someone once said that sharing Jesus with another person is is like one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. See, if you're not a Christian, please know that I'm a beggar. Now, the Christian you're sitting next to is a beggar. We are all spiritual beggars here. But we've found bread in Jesus. And we actually want you to find that bread too. Uh, But if you're a Christian, keep remembering the compassionate generosity of Jesus for you at the cross. You see, he is our compelling motivation now. He is the means by which we will develop soft hearts and open hands. Uh, When I was writing this particular section of the sermon this week, I actually received a message on my phone from a fellow believer uh, who was in need of some immediate material assistance. And I thought, man, I didn't realise I'd be challenged to put all this into practice so quickly. Um, But it was interesting. I literally had the message of Jesus in one hand and the message of this person's need in the other. And actually, that was really helpful because I actually couldn't escape what I had been thinking about with Jesus. If If he gave everything for a spiritually needy sinner like me, how could I refuse to give some of my resources that God's blessed me and my family with anyway to help a fellow believer? Now, don't get me wrong. I can be like Israel. I can be stingy. I can be inconsistent in my generosity. um, But it's just more difficult to be hard-hearted and tight-fisted when the reality of Jesus' death for you is front and centre in your mind. Uh, In 1 John 3, uh, 16, 
John writes this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, well, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. As we remember the gospel in our heads, our hearts will be softened and our hands will be open to God's glory. So keep remembering the compassionate generosity of Jesus. Oh, finally, the last point, Israel's worship of her generous God. Uh, This chapter ends on a note of worship. Uh, Israel is called to a yearly sacrifice of the firstborn unblemished male of their herds and flocks. Uh, These animals, we're told, are specifically set apart for God, verse 19, not to be used for any other purpose. You can't shear them. You can't work them. They belong to God. Uh, But notice that the sacrifice, which was to happen at God's chosen place, we're told, was actually to be enjoyed by all of God's people. This isn't a sacrifice that's completely consumed in the fire. No, it's to be enjoyed and eaten. Verse 20 tells us that Israelite families were to celebrate together by eating of the sacrifice. Uh, In this act of worship, it was not just Israel giving to God, but actually God still giving to Israel. He invites them as families to reflect upon his provision and enjoy the sacrifice as a celebratory meal. And you'll notice that God's generosity doesn't actually stop there either. In verses 21, 22, the animals with slight defects, they're not to be wasted. They're not appropriate to offer to God, but God still wants Israel to benefit from them. And so God, in his characteristic generosity, allows both the ceremonially unclean and clean within Israel to eat their meat so long as the lifeblood of that animal has been respected. Uh, As followers of Jesus, God no longer calls us to offer sacrifices in our worship to him, offer sacrifices of animals, but rather out of thanks to Jesus' sacrifice for us at the cross, his final sacrifice, uh, the New Testament says that we're to worship God by, in one sense, becoming living sacrifices ourselves. Uh, conforming our lives to the way Jesus wants us to live in thankful obedience. Uh, Romans 12 puts it like this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. And you'll notice uh, beyond that point in Romans 12, Paul sort of explains what that Uh, life-pleasing to God looks like in a whole bunch of different areas. Uh, But one of the the ways that we offer true and proper worship to God, according to Paul and the rest of Romans, is actually pointed out for us in 12.13. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. It's actually just tapping into everything that we've been looking at in Deuteronomy 15. So what might it look like uh, to live a life that is holy and pleasing to God? 
in the way we show compassionate generosity. I'll tell you some of the ways I've seen it uh, at Bundy and, and been encouraged here in the last little while. Uh, I've seen growth groups who collectively cook food for the deacons so that they'll have meals to give those in need. Uh, I've seen people giving of their time and energy to help a couple, for example, make their wedding day happen without excess levels of stress. I've seen people giving of uh, their time and energy to help a brother or sister move house when they're in need. I've seen people offer a room in their house when someone's in need. I hear about it uh, in people's willingness to support financially our missionaries in difficult and remote places. I actually saw it uh, with the registrations of our recent church camp. Many of you willingly gave beyond the actual cost so that others who are struggling could attend and be encouraged. Uh, We, like every other congregation is still a work in progress. Uh, There will be people here that we still need to know and care for, but it is encouraging to see soft hearts and open hands in in action. Uh, Let me close by reminding you just once again of God's compassionate generosity to you. Uh, Many of you know will know the famous verse, John 3.16. If you grew up in a Christian family, it was probably taught to you as a memory verse. Um, But just imagine for a moment that John 3.16 said the exact opposite thing. Imagine it said this, For God was so horrified at the world that he withheld his one and only Son, So that we who reject him should not find life in Jesus, but justly perish. See, how tragic would it be for God to give us what we actually deserve? Now that we've got that in our mind, let me read to you the actual verse that tells us the truth about who our God is. You'll have to read that one in your Bibles. I'll read it out for you. For God so loved the world, God's heart was soft, that he gave his one and only Son, his hand was open, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. As we come across opportunities to show generosity to someone in need this week, let's just keep remembering the generous God and the generous Saviour we follow so that we too might have soft hearts and open hands. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your heart was soft to us and your hand was open. Thank you that you did I love a world in rebellion to you so much that you willingly gave up your only son. Father, help us to be imitators of your great generosity. Uh, This week, Lord, help us to be mindful of those in need. 
and to demonstrate compassionate generosity to them. In Jesus' name, amen.